0: Hello and welcome to Life Sentences, I'm Caroline Baum. I have to say that in all the stories we've told on this podcast before, the woman at the centre of this episode's biography is probably the most bizarre and the most elusive. Eve Langley and the Pea Pickers is Helen Vine's determined attempt to unravel the secrets and mysteries of an author with a very slippery sense of fact and fiction. Langley was born in 1904 in country New South Wales. As adolescents, she and her sister June dressed up as boys and went off in search of work as farm labourers. And Eve used their experiences to write The Pea Pickers, which became a bestseller when published in 1942. So far, so good. But it's the rest of the story that is so baffling. Along the way, Eve spent the next seven years incarcerated in a mental institution changed her name legally to Oscar Wilde, married and had three children and lost touch with them, and became estranged from her sister while continuing to write. What's clear from Helen Vines's detective work is that secrets were a very big part of the Langley family and that Eve's father is an important part of the puzzle. Helen, welcome to Life Sentences.
1: Thank you, Caroline.
0: Would you like to start by telling us who Eve Langley
1: was? Okay, so Eve Langley was an Australian writer who was born in the early 20th century and living in New Zealand when her first novel called The Pea Pickers was published in 1942. This was a story that was based on the real-life adventures of herself and her sister in the late 1920s, of a period in their lives when they dressed up as men and went to work as itinerant labourers in Gippsland and New South Wales. So The Pea Pickers was told in the first-person by a narrator called Steve Hart, and it involves these antics, these events in Eve and June's life that are recreated in this particular book. Several months later, Eve was committed to a mental asylum in Auckland, where she remained for nearly eight years. When she emerged in 1950, she re-established contact with her editor from Angus and Robertson, which had published The Pea Pickers, and she offered up for publication her next book, which was called White to Pay. White to Pay took a slightly different angle in so far as Eve and her sister were separated. And it was notable for a late inclusion, which included a passage of her being born into the family. So this book was published in 1954. Thereafter, Eve was living in New Zealand and she wrote another nearly 10 novels, possibly more. And moved back to Australia in 1960, to be followed soon after by her sister June in 1961. Although they lived quite closely together, geographically speaking, they quickly fell out of sorts, shall we say. And by the time Eve had died in 1974, they were really not speaking at all. And that really was the beginning of the end in some ways for Eve, because June took on the role of biographer. She was interviewed on a number of occasions and the kind of anger she felt towards her sister began to seep into Eve's reputation.
0: Wow, that's an extraordinary encapsulation of a life that I find endlessly intriguing. I really admire you for even attempting this biography um, because the life story is so messy and so full of ambiguities, not least about gender, but also obviously mental health and family relationships. So this book that you've written, this biography, is the result of 10 years worth of research. What started this journey for you?
1: Okay, so I was actually casting around at the end of the 1990s for a project for a master's thesis. And I was thinking about writing about Australian women who'd grown up in a rural environment. It was just a general topic. And I quickly came across Eve's book amongst all the usual suspects, and I was immediately blown out of the water by its complexity, by the fascinating way she wrote about landscape, by the really quite extraordinary heroine who is, everybody still acknowledges, as really quite unprecedented then and certainly probably hasn't been replicated since. But I was also quite intrigued by all of the undercurrents that were coming through this book, which didn't seem to be picked up by other people. So there was a moment where I thought to myself, well, okay, I have to have parameters around my research. I was going to go for post Second World War, but I can't leave Eve out of it. So I took a closer look and one of the first things I did was have a look at the biography that had been written by Joy Thwaite in 1989 and observed that when Joy used the fiction that Eve had written as the basis for her biography, Eve's life appeared inexplicably strange and I took, I tucked that away and then I went and had a look at Eve's correspondence with her editors and that really was a moment in which I thought to myself, well, Eve appears to be quite sane. She does not appear to have lost her sense of self, as Joythwaite had suggested, and her letters to her editor really showed her in a completely different light. So I decided that that would be my project. Subsequently, a couple of years later, I decided to explore the relationship between Eve and her sister and how that was reflected in the fiction and tried to establish for the first time a chronology of Eve's life.
0: You bit off a lot. I don't know whether you bit off more than you could chew, but I mean, there must have been several points in the middle of those 10 years where did you ever feel like you were getting lost or that you were sort of being sucked into a, a vortex or trying to untangle, as you say, the fiction from the reality? Were there points when you nearly gave up or you thought, what have I done?
1: I never nearly gave up, ever. All I knew, I knew I all I had to do was hang on by my fingertips and I would get there. It never occurred to me to give up. I knew that I was onto something, that there were very interesting things to be found. I also knew that I couldn't allow the complexity and difficulty of the subject matter to influence my response to that subject matter and also the way in which I communicated that subject matter to my readers, which is to say, I took very pragmatic approaches to all of the chaotic materials such as it was. It did take a long time. There was a lot of sifting, endless sifting, really. And the actual archival material was really difficult to decipher, both physically and because Eve and her sister, and possibly their mother, had manipulated those archives so that things like letters were in boxes. First page might have been separated from page 20. In different boxes, they had no salutation, no sense of... Necessarily of who the author was, who they were writing to, perhaps not even when they were writing. So, and as a researcher, I could only ever take out one box at a time in the Mitchell Library. So if I found a little piece of paper somewhere and I had a kind of sense that I had something somewhere else that related to that, I couldn't just photocopy it and then kind of run back, find the box, bring it back. I had to actually just sort of take endless notes and gradually piece it together. It was like a box of confetti.
0: Let's go back to the very beginning and talk about the dynamics of the family, because the really intriguing thing about the family is how this family is completely immeshed in secrecy. By their own admission, I think that it's Eve and June's mother who says, we are a family obsessed with secrets. Can you just characterize the family? Tell us a little bit about the parents and about this sort of bubble of secrecy that seems to have enveloped them?
1: Well, the whole secrecy theme really was a moment where I really started to focus my research and my thinking because I had actually the letter that you refer to where Mia talks about being very secretive. I'd seen that bit of paper over and over and over because she's actually talking about June's baby. June is pregnant in 1932 and this bit of paper that I didn't recognise Mia's handwriting because I hadn't seen her handwriting and it, she talks about a cricket, which is the baby. Of course. So she's talking, she's talking in code to Eve, which is to say she is writing a letter to Eve talking about the little cricket and how she mustn't tell anybody and because you know how very secretive we are. This was a moment of crystallisation for me because here we have a family that is collecting letters in order to support Eve's vocation as a writer and you have a secret that is odd because June had been married for two and a half years. She had a husband. There was no shame. There was no nothing unexpected about her being pregnant but for some reason, Mia didn't want Eve to convey to any of her relatives. Eve was in Mietang at the time That June was pregnant. And when I finally clicked that the little cricket was in fact June's baby, and at that point I had no evidence even that June had had a baby because she adamantly denied that she had. And had Eve not written about Eve's baby in Land of the Long White Cloud and Demeter of Dublin Street, no one might have ever known about that baby because it disappeared, of course. But it was a moment where I thought to myself, hmm, I think I have my argument here. Mm. Because Mia had taken the girls and they had left their father in 1914. So the girls had been brought up until that time in the sort of outback of New South Wales around Forbes and Gumble, places like that. But unexpectedly, Mia had picked up the daughters and left and gone to cross over in Gippsland in 1914. So... There was already there was a uh, breakdown in the family relationships, so we knew that had happened. But also, having read the pea pickers, I knew that she Eve, the narrator Steve, had described the father as being perverted and evil. So, things in terms of the texts and also the life, sort of gradually began to weave together. Eve appeared to have suffered from a psychological illness at the onset of puberty. The only evidence I have from for that is that she appears to have left school suddenly and June later wrote of a very profound torpor that came upon her. And it sort of seemed to suggest that that was the time that Eve started writing sort of her little stories at the end of the table. So in terms of talking about the complexity of the family, it was quite obvious to me, and I'm surprised that it wasn't perfectly obvious to everybody else, that there were things going on within this family that were being repressed and suppressed that probably not everybody in the family, which is to say the two daughters and the mother knew the same information, and that's not unexpected. It's quite common for people to grow up in the same family and not necessarily have the same knowledge. And so this proceeded into a very interesting, from my point of view, journey in terms of uncovering information about them, but also being very transparent about how I knew that information, which came back to really the essential platform of my methodology, which was to only use historically verifiable documents. But I never used Eve's fiction as a source of evidence.
0: Okay. Now, one really crucial bit of evidence in in sort of putting together um, your sense of what may or may not have occurred in the family is a drawing. Could you talk to us about the drawing?
1: Okay. Would you like to see it? I'd love to see it. (laughs) How delicious. Okay. (laughs) Okay, what you're looking at is a line drawing in ink of a man dressed in nothing but his underpants, holding onto the hand, quite firmly in my opinion, of a young girl who is fully dressed. And above these two figures are the words Apollo and Dolly, 1913, and further above that the term Forbes- 1913. And to the right, there is the image of a book and of a doll. Okay,
0: so what do you deduce from this quite peculiar drawing?
1: Well, to me, it doesn't seem as if there is any benign explanation for this, particularly within the context of Eve's writing. And I talk about this in my final speculative chapter called The Invisible Cloak of Childhood. But not being a psychiatrist or a psychologist, um, I was lucky enough to be sitting next to a woman who actually was an adolescent psychologist in a library. And we got chatting over the time and I showed her this picture. And for her, it was very, very obvious what she was looking at. She said that she she drew attention to the fact of the book and the doll. She said quite often in images drawn by children who have been abused, there is something that has the beginning, a middle and an end. A book is an obvious example. Mm. Uh, She also said that the doll represented, in many cases, examples of abuse. And in fact, some children collect a doll for each occasion. This, again, is supported by what we know about Eve. She had a huge collection of dolls, a huge collection. And she took them with her even when she went overseas in 1968, There's a particularly poignant image that I really find hard to shake, which is of her lining up all her little dolls like in the bush, like a little bush burial, as if this meant something very, very profound to her, but she couldn't quite say what. The psychologist also drew attention to the fact that the man was not clothed, and she drew the connection actually that this person might well be a cross-dresser. So all of the kind of outstanding issues that seem to be emerging from the the biography, from the fiction and indeed from June's commentary on her own life and her sister's life seem to come together in this drawing. She also names a time and a place, so Forbes, where she was living, 1913, when she was eight. And this is again reinforced in her manuscripts at various points where she draws attention to when she was an eight-year-old child. So... This picture was drawn just, I think, a few months before she died. So it seemed to me that it wasn't really until the end of her life that she began to really consider how she might communicate what her experiences had been.
0: Let's talk about cross-dressing. So let's assume that the father was a cross-dresser, perhaps. And can you just... I think... Mm. Yes,
1: go Uh, on. I'm very careful not to assume too much all I can really do is say what I have found. I don't know that he was a crossdresser. I never heard anything from him, so I do put these, you know, quite deep qualifications on my own interpretation of what the material provides. I just feel I I need to say that absolutely, yes. absolutely.
0: So, and we should also say that by profession he was a shearer, wasn't he? So he
1: had a very masculine job. Exactly. Exactly. And, in fact, one of the you know I mean, as you can imagine, my research took me in, into all sorts of areas, some of them really quite unpleasant. but one of the interesting things was that that I discovered was that in very very masculine cultures such as Australia you know and particularly possibly in the early twentieth century, but possibly also now, cross dressing was quite prevalent. So where you had these very repressive stereotypes imposed on men, it was not actually completely unheard of that this would be a way of expressing different parts of a man's personality.
0: That's fascinating too. So let's just go then to the actual aspect of this in the story of the Pea Pickers, which is about two Mm -hmm. sisters who dress up as boys to go and work as Pea Pickers. Now... In real life, when Eve and June went off and did this, they attracted the attention of the media in a way okay. that seems quite sort of benign and open-minded. Could you just talk a little
1: bit about that? OK, so there is a newspaper article that was written from, the, I think it's the Burrower Times in New South Wales, where they have a headline of boys will be boys and girls will be boys and... It's quite a short little article. It's very cute. And it basically describes how Eve and June have walked about 100 miles to get to wherever it is they were going. To Rutherglen, I yes. think it was. Yes, it was. In quite arduous circumstances. And they're interviewing them and suggesting that maybe they should go off and get workers domestics. And they have this very kind of defiant flourish where they say, not likely, we're going to be workers in the fields or nothing, which is just a great little anecdote. And really the only piece of evidence, which was very important to me, that actually located this story in real life, because that's been my whole thing, that I had to embed everything in in a document. So the first public kind of outing, if you like, of these girls is in 1926. And yes, it's this very fabulous little newspaper article. So
0: from that article and its tone I mean do you think that this was unusual that what they were doing was unusual because it doesn't seem to have shocked anybody and what what do we know about their experience as pea pickers was it positive were they welcomed into the workforce I mean
1: what? The only information really that I have that's concrete is what is in the pea pickers. I don't treat that as autobiography, As I don't treat any of it as autobiography, but Eve seems to have destroyed or lost all of her letters and documents and journals that she based the Pea Pickers on. So I can't say with any certainty exactly what happened. I can read the Pea Pickers and say, well, she talks about, you know, how they interacted with other workers. She talks about really quite high levels of sexual assault, to be perfectly honest, she talks about her anger at being spied on, as well as the sort of some of the deeper kind of connections she developed with people she would call mates, and also people who became, in theory, at least her lovers. So in terms of actually having documentary evidence of what they did, really that little newspaper article, that's, that's it in terms of that, that is so fascinating,
0: Helen, because I got a sense, I don't know whether I misread this or misinterpreted this, but that later on in life, from June's point of view, there was a kind of nostalgia about their time when they were pea pickers together. There is a point where I think much later on, she sort of refers to them still as pea pickers, as if this was the crystallization of Absolutely. their bond as sisters.
1: Absolutely. Yes, you're absolutely right. This was their primavera. This time in their life was that moment that made them so deeply bonded that they felt they could never be separated. You're absolutely right. So when I'm saying there's no sort of external evidence, what I mean is I don't have the letters, I don't have documents that sort of itemised, you know, did they in fact boil up their clothes with a big pumpkin? I have a photograph of Eve amongst a pile of enormous pumpkins, but did they actually take that next step and cook a pumpkin stew with their clothing to avoid being caught stealing pumpkins? (laughs) Or did they laugh about doing that and saying, that's what we'll do if we get caught? You know, I don't have a journal entry that says we did this or, you know, we might have done that.
0: That sense of that intimate bond that they had in the pea pickers as these other characters, as their sort of alter egos, maybe I should say, it makes the disintegration of their relationship all the more poignant. It makes it really tragic. So let's talk about... Eve's relationship with her sister later on because it's it's extremely variable. So they go from being very close to being completely separate when Eve dies, as you say, despite the fact that they're living in the same place. Now, June at one stage denounces her sister as schizophrenic and does that in an episode of incredible disloyalty, writing to Eve's Editor Beatrice Davis, what on earth prompts June to be so vicious towards her sister?
1: I think the simple answer to that is that June never understood Eve. I don't think June knew what had happened to Eve. I think that she felt that they were ideally suited to be companions for life and she really couldn't work out why Eve would keep pushing her away. I think there were a number of points which kind of pushed the whole thing forward. One was when June married a man she'd met on a train and moved to New Zealand and then came back and took Mia away from Australia. I think Eve found that very confronting because Mia really was where their sense of home was. And once she was gone to New Zealand, Eve was left with no choice, really. She had to follow, which she did, obviously. So I think that really destabilised the relationship a lot. I think that when Eve and June had their children... They didn't help each other, as far as I can tell. I mean, both of them lost all their children during the 1930s. We don't know what happened to June's baby. We know what was written by Eve about the experience of her living with that family and the horrible manifestations of rage she expressed towards June's baby. That's the fiction. We know that Eve had a baby in 1935 that died of preventable causes, So the opportunities that they had to nurture each other and take care of each other and their babies, despite the fact that they live quite close together, was not acted on. That, to me, is inexplicable. We know also that June was given Eve's manuscripts when Eve was admitted to the Auckland Mental Hospital. I sense that she read those manuscripts at some point. She does acknowledge that to Beatrice Davis, who was Eve's editor at Angus and Robertson in when she began communicating with her via letter writing in 1950. I wonder if Eve hadn't already formulated a lot of those manuscripts that were subsequently stored away at Angus and Robertson and June read them and had a very angry sense of betrayal herself so that when she had an opportunity to speak about Eve... She did so in some very vitriolic and, yeah, unnecessarily frank ways. And
0: and when Eve was incarcerated
1: in that institution, did June visit her? I believe so, occasionally. She does say she did visit her. One of the things that, you know, is a gap in the chronology, if you like, is that we don't have access to Eve's medical records. So they can only be given to the next of kin, which perhaps has been done. That would be really, really interesting. In one sense, but in another sense, perhaps not, because perhaps someone as complex as Eve may not have ever received the kind of treatment that she needed. What I do know is that, you know, she wasn't certified till about a week after she'd been admitted to the hospital. And then in the... So that was in August of 1942. So in September of 1942, she wrote to a priest and said, well, you know, I've been depressed, but I feel so much better after the rest. So to me, this is one of those moments of of where my heart drops. And I think to myself, I'm reading a letter where she appears perfectly coherent, and yet she's about to spend nearly eight years in a mental asylum. And after that letter, in which she concedes that the warden or the superintendent had said, best not to be writing any letters for now, you don't hear another word from her until 1950. And I find that very disturbing. So as to June's behaviour during that time, I can't be quite clear. She had married again, but she also sought in 1948 to have Eve lobotomised, which is an extraordinary development in my view. She wrote to a brain surgeon and she said to him, you know, this is my sister. Well, do you think a lobotomy would help? And he writes back to her, Sorry, I actually didn't see that letter. I'm going on what he says when he writes back because she, of course, never acknowledged that she had inquired about a lobotomy. But it is perfectly clear from the letter that Hugh Cairns writes back to her that she has raised the possibility of a lobotomy. Um, And he says, well, you know, this is a fairly straightforward procedure. I'm not really in a position to judge. And besides, I'm going off to London. You know, here's another doctor you can talk to if you'd like to. So two years later, Eva's out and about and she's setting up her life in a perfectly straightforward way, apart from the fact that she does not reconnect with her children. And to me, this is another one of those gut-wrenching moments when you realise that, that her experiences up to this point have led her to a position where she feels she cannot reconnect with her children. And in fact, she really never does. In around 1968 or in the late 1960s, when she's in the Blue Mountains, she has visits from her two sons. And she goes to visit her daughter, Beasy, and there's a really poignant moment where she writes about, or actually Beasy, when she was interviewed by Joy Thwaite, she refers to the fact that Eve was very tearful, especially when she saw Beasy's children. So there are moments when you realise how tragic this life has Mm. been. And in terms of June, that was one of the greatest tragedies because they could have helped each other. You know, they had, they shared their interests. June wanted to travel with Eve. When Eve came back to Australia, she was quite often going back to her old haunts. June would say, oh, you know, can I come with you? And Eve would say, no, no. And so those opportunities to nurture each other throughout their lives were really not realised. And I find that very sad as well. The fact that June ended up so angry that I think the actual letter you're referring to was in about 1964, where she suddenly shoots off this missive to Beatrice Davis, who she'd not communicated with since 1951, and says, right, well, my sister's a schizophrenic, you know, and everybody knows that she's just like Nijinsky. Goodbye. <laughs>
0: Just to pursue, I want to move on to other things, but just to pursue the mental illness aspect of this story a little bit more, the Oscar Wilde identification on Eve's part, what was it that she identified with in the Oscar Wilde persona? Why did she assume that role? Why did she call herself Oscar Wilde at times in some of her correspondence?
1: Oscar Wilde was a man who was representing himself, arguably someone different to who he was, which is to say he was a married man with children, but he was uh, gay. Steve Hart was a man who had a very masculine profession of being a bush ranger. He was the protagonist, the name of the chief protagonist in The Pea Pickers. He often dressed as a woman when he was trying to escape pursuit by the police. So you had these sort of characters who were quite complicated men that she also adopted as a nom de plume. Mm. But even though Joy Thwaite, who wrote her 1980 biography based on the fiction, argued very strongly that from 1953 onwards, Eve had adopted the persona of Oscar Wilde, there is absolutely no evidence that that is the case whatsoever. Yes, she changed her name to Oscar Wilde. And she said things like, Well, if you're going to reject my manuscripts, just send them to Oscar Wilde. He can deal with that. <laughs> so, this identification perhaps she had of an artist who was different but who was being rejected, or, you know, just as somebody that she could say, Well, you know, send those reject slips to him. But the long and the short of it is that from April, which is when she changed her name, to within the next month, she'd gone back to calling herself Eve. I'm not aware that she ever identified particularly strongly with Oscar Wilde.
0: Now, her friend Hal Porter believed that she was latently lesbian and critics have commented on the lesbian subtext of her work. But in reality, in real life, neither Eve nor June were lesbians. Both of them married. Well, I mean, that doesn't mean anything, I suppose. But can you just comment on this sort of
1: myth in a way
0: that may have grown up around them.
1: Because Eve did write erotically about her sister. Yes. And this was one of the kind of key things that alerted me to the fact that all was not well within this family because it's not sufficient to say that a sexual attraction, however it's written between sisters, is lesb- is a lesbian relationship. This is an incestuous relationship first and foremost. And the fact that people brushed over that mm. I found quite concerning There were many occasions in which the narrator of Eve's fiction seemed to switch backwards and forwards between what I call aleroticism and revulsion, which is to say that there are a number of occasions where they appear to be extremely close. But having said that, there is no evidence whatsoever that they have breached the taboo of incest. It is more an eroticisation of relationships.
0: I'm just going to ask you to explain alloeroticism there, Helen, because I had to go and look that up. (laughs) It's an
1: attraction between sisters.
0: Right. Okay. I'd never seen that word before. Thank you. Because there is some very erotic writing, as you mentioned. They're sleeping together in the same bed, I think, when they're Mm -hmm. young women, which presumably was not that unusual at the time in a modest family anyway. You know, nobody had the same notions of privacy as we do today necessarily. But the description, and I can't remember it's a description, is it from Eve about Sleeping with June, or is it from June, Sleeping with Eve, about them in their sleep playing with each other's hands in this very sensual, erotic way, also with a piece of cloth that is sort of passing between their limbs or wrapped between their limbs. There's, there's a very sexual, very erotic there piece is. of prose there. Which, which sister is writing to whom there? I'm confused.
1: So that is a, a passage in The Pea Pickers, but it's also reiterated in um, at least one other pieces of the fiction. And in fact, June also refers to them sleeping together at Willoughby's when she's interviewed in the 1980s. So this does seem to have been a moment. However, I don't know that I can say anything more except the fact that it points to very odd family relationships because even though incest between sisters is very underreported in the uh, literature on incest. And people have suggested that's because it doesn't, you know, contravene the kind of rape ideology of of exploitation. It doesn't also contravene the biological taboo. But it does, to me, point to very significant oddities Mm. within the family system. And indeed, you know, the sexualization of relationships between family members is very indicative of a family in which abuse has taken place. And
0: certainly the intensity of feeling that June has later feels like a wound of rejection and tremendous jealousy and a desire for vengeance. You know, I hope I'm not sort of layering too much in there. One thing on a positive note that I'd, I'd like to sort of talk about is... The Pea Pickers enjoyed success instantly, didn't it? So, so Eve got the affirmation and the validation of being a successful writer in her own lifetime, which many women of that time did not get to enjoy. How successful was the book and what was the response to
1: it like and what did that mean, for example, financially financially? Well, because Eve was incarcerated so soon after the Pea Pickers came out, she had limited opportunity to really revel in the success that the book had. So she does write in a letter to, in, I think it was her September letter to Father Colgan in 1942, while she's in the hospital, that she'd received letters from various people like Norman Lindsay, Miles Franklin, I think, and various other people, Mary Gilmore, maybe, so she was very excited about that. But in terms of the actual accolades that sort of might have come from her going back amongst the people that she knew, that was something that she really missed out on because she just disappeared for the next seven years or so. She loved the book. She, you know, really harboured that book as something, a major accomplishment for herself. And she knew how successful it was eventually.
0: I'm really glad about your biography that that it includes photographs because, of course, reading this, one is dying to see what Eve and June looked like. And fortunately, there are photographs. Now, of course, the first thing one notices about Eve is that she dresses in quite a peculiar and eccentric way, as noted by her editor. So I'm just going to read a brief description here, which is, I think this is Beatrice Davis says, a massive fur coat to her ankles in summer with an athletic singlet and shorts and sandals. And on another occasion, she's visiting Hal Porter and she's wearing a pinstripe suit, cardigan, and a striped tie with a long fur coat and white topee. I, I I thought it was a topee, but you you, it's one of those oh probably taupe, colonial yes. <laughs> pith helmet things, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. So can you can you talk a little bit about
1: Eve's look? That look, in my opinion, was the look that she had when she was publicising herself. These days, I don't think anyone would think twice about it. No, Do I think that she dressed like that all the time? No, I do not. But part of the issue with people writing about Eve is because it is such an uh, an extraordinary get up, it kind of cements itself in the imagination that this was Eve Langley. In fact, you know, when she first dons that coat, it is in 1954 for some publicity photographs she's doing for White to And... If you read her description of those characters that she claims to be representing, there is an incredibly long backstory to why she is dressed in that way. The particular reference you're talking about is when she goes to Sydney in 1956, and she must have turned up at the offices of Angus and Robertson dressed like this. And indeed, when she went to visit Hal Porter, she's done the same thing. Do I think she always wandered around in a fur coat? No, I just don't think that at all. Why she would do this? Well, why does anybody dress up? You know, she was trying to create a persona that would shock and interest and intrigue. Because why not? I guess from her point of view. In the Pea Pickers, in the fiction,
0: how are Stevie and Blue dressed? Because in the press cutting that I was talking about before, about them when they're arriving in Rutherglen, they seem to be photographed wearing dungarees. Is that what the Pea Pickers are wearing in the novel?
1: They wear all sorts of different clothing. They don't seem to be trying to actually pretend to be men. They wear ribbons, they wear scarves, they wear little clinched-in belts with their kind of their pants and their coats, they seem to be quite a curious hybrid of male and female. And that seems to be a very deliberate element. And in fact, one of the sort of moments in The Pea Pickers is where one of the workers says, so, you know, why do you dress like that? And Steve says, our mother and our sister dresses like this. Up until this point, there has been no indication whatsoever that there is a third sister. And this became, for me, actually another source of evidence, if you like, that there was in fact two women in the family separate from the sisters. So they don't attempt to explain themselves. They have no intention of explaining why they're dressing like this. But at the same time, they want to draw attention to themselves. So it's sort of endlessly contradictory. You do this, you do that. What does it all mean? I think what has to be added to this is the obsession with sartorial themes, which pervades all of the fiction. So it's not just about cross-dressing, it's about treating fabric and clothing as objects of all sorts of narratives, from voyeurism through to mutilation through to transformation. Clothing and fabric have a huge variety of applications within all of Eve's fiction. So This is not a a theme that's limited just to the way they perform as individuals.
0: There's another thing I just wanted to touch on briefly, which is that you mention that Eve presented her manuscripts very badly. There was a lot of complaining, I think, from Angus and Robertson about the state of the manuscripts when they got them. And you say that you think that in the long run, this may have impacted on her career. So really, apart from the Pea Pickers, you know, The White to Pea is really not a book that anybody knows about today. And as you say, all the others were rejected Were they rejected because they were bad? Were they rejected because they were an indecipherable mess? Were they rejected because they were the same book over and over? Can you perhaps tell us whether, in your opinion, Eve Langley really only had one great book in her or have we missed out on a sort of
1: undiscovered body of work? Hmm. Well, First of all, as physical objects, the initial submissions that Eve was making was that she was typing on pink paper, very closely spaced, so single spacing. I don't know if it was on both sides of the paper. It would not surprise me. <laughs> I haven't actually seen those ones. I've only seen photocopies of the manuscripts that she rekeyed at their insistence. So as physical objects, they were very fragile. They were very hard for the editors to manage. You know, they talk at one, Nan MacDonald talks at one point about the fact that it's too hard on their eyes to possibly be reading little fine onion skin pages with tiny little typing on it. So as physical objects, she did not capitalise on the opportunity to double space on white paper. Although she later was, after she met them, she came to an understanding that she needed to, to provide proper copies of her manuscripts. Did she not get published because she didn't produce well-edited manuscripts in the first place? Quite possibly, because in order to knock these pieces of work into shape, she would have had to go back and really thoroughly edit and cut out all the repetition. She would include things like long pieces of letters. I think at one point there was a 24 pages of a letter that she had sent to June. So she would have these diversions that were really quite unhelpful from the point of view of a narrative. They were sort of fairly chronological. The writing between, the difference in writing between the works that were done about Australia and that focused in on her family were completely different to the works that she did about her New Zealand family that she developed with Hilary Clark, whom she married in 1937. These latter manuscripts were an almost blow-by-blow description of her very traumatic life at that time. And some of the readers found that too confronting. Have we missed out on something? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Helen, I have to ask you, I
0: mean, this, you know, obviously you were dogged. You were absolutely dogged and determined about Mm -hmm. uh, following every trail during the 10 years that this biography has taken you. What has the impact of writing this book been on you and what are you going to do now
1: (laughs) if you're asking me was there an emotional impact on me you know in terms of the kind of subject matter because it went so dark i think that came later when i revisited it with the intention of publishing and i got to the end of my chapter on the fiction and i talk not at great length but i do refer to the way that eve and her husband hillary treated their children And that was a really, a moment I may have even cried because I really hit home that this was about more than a a novel. It was about the life experience, not just of Eve, but it was also the life experience of the children. And so, yes, I did have moments mainly in relation to the children where I just felt a bit heartbroken. There's no question about that.
0: I told you it was baffling. This is very much a biography for today, when issues of gender and identity have become so prominent and become such significant parts of our cultural conversation. This biography can't answer all the riddles that Eve Langley poses, but Helen Vines' forensic approach goes a long way to a better understanding of an enigmatic character. I think those medical records she refers to would provide a lot of material if they still exist. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and Pipewolf Media. We live and work on Darrowell country and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown.